This is Space Time Series 26, Episode 67, for broadcast on the 5th of June, 2023. Coming up on Space Time, profound new discoveries about the mysteries of fast radio bursts, South Korea joins the space race, launching its own satellite on its own rocket. Meanwhile, north of the border, it's crash and burn for North Korea's latest attempt to launch a spy satellite. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Astronomers have discovered one of the mysteries of fast radio bursts. It seems these enigmatic blasts from deep space have reversible magnetic fields. The groundbreaking detection reported in the journal Science will have profound implications for the ongoing international effort to determine exactly what fast radio bursts are and how they're triggered. All we really know is that fast radio bursts, or FRBs as they're commonly called, are sudden massive blasts of radio energy coming from distant parts of the cosmos, usually billions of light years away. In fact, they release more energy in just a single second than our sun does in an entire year. The first fast radio burst was discovered back in 2007 in data from the Parkes Radio Telescope in the central west of New South Wales. Now that astronomers know what they're looking for, they detect literally hundreds of them every day, all over the sky, and usually in the spiral arms of ancient galaxies. The first bursts were all singular events, occurring once at a specific location, and then never again. And that suggested that they must have been caused by some sort of cataclysmic event, such as the supernova explosion of a massive star but astronomers are now detecting fast radio bursts that appear to be repeating from the same location. And that suggests a very different origin. Right now, the leading contenders are highly magnetised neutron stars known as magnetars. However, things like feeding black holes and even glitching neutron stars haven't been ruled out just yet. Now, alternatively, it could all mean that there are two separate causes for these mysterious deep space blasts. Or it could simply be that all fast radio bursts are repeaters, just with some being a lot more active than others. As for the new magnetic field discovery, well, it's based on 17 months of observations of a repeating fast radio burst, catalogued as 2019-0520b, that was made by the CSIRO's Parkes Radio Telescope and the National Science Foundation's Greenback Radio Telescope in West Virginia. The authors found that FRB 2019-0520b is surrounded by dense plasma that's not only highly magnetised but also extremely turbulent, and the direction of that magnetic field changed twice during the observing period. It's a phenomenon never observed before. The study's lead author, Shidae from the University of Western Sydney, says the findings bring astronomers a little bit closer to eventually solving the enigma of fast radio bursts, in the process hoping to uncover new insights into some of the most extreme environments in the universe. And because fast radio bursts originate in distant galaxies, that makes them unique tools to probe a range of astrophysical events, such as the missing matter between galaxies, the expansion of the universe, and astrophysics in dense and highly magnetised environments. 2019-0520b is not only a rare repeating fast radio burst, but more importantly, it can be detected over a wide range of radio frequencies. 
and this enables astronomers to use the most advanced radio instruments, such as Parkes' ultra-wideband receiver, in order to carry out detailed studies. The high sensitivity of the ultra-wideband receiver allows astronomers to observe the object at much higher frequencies and thereby collect large amounts of data. And that's important because this fast radio burst tumultuous magnetic field was only seen at very high frequencies, above 3000 MHz, which the Parkes dish is uniquely suited to detect. Over the course of the study, the authors detected more than 100 bursts coming from FRB 2019-0520B and they successfully detected polarised emission in 13 of them. Now, significantly, these polarised bursts revealed the direction of the magnetic field around the source had changed twice during this short period of time. The change in the direction of the magnetic field put some strong constraints on the origin of the FRB. It requires that the source of the FRB is moving relative to a large-scale magnetic field. Now, one possibility is that the FRB's source is in a binary system with a star which has a strong stellar wind with a strong magnetic field. So, as the FRB orbits around the star, it moves in and out of this stellar wind, which could explain the observations. Day says the team are now planning to conduct further observations in order to better understand this object's nature. We have been uh, observing this FRB 2019-0520B. So this is a so-called repeating FRB. So it basically repeatedly emit very bright radio pulses. One of the very interesting features of this type of active repeating FRB is we know that their local environment, so basically where these FRBs are from, are very dense and highly magnetized. And we know this because we measured something called Faraday rotation through the polarized radio emission. And uh, this has been puzzling astronomers because as you just mentioned, it's really hard to actually measure and, un- and understand magnetic field in our universe because it can be complicated and it's really hard to probe. And we don't really know what types of magnetized environment actually these sources are actually located in. So that's uh, one of the biggest puzzles we have. But interestingly, with our observations using parks and the GBT in the U.S., we discovered that the sign of the Faraday rotation actually changed over the course of about 16 months. It means the direction of the magnetic field actually reversed during this period of time, which is really rare and uh, hasn't been observed before in any uh, FRBs. So you're saying the polarity changed or simply the orientation? Simply the uh, orientation. And we know that it's really hard to actually, if you think about the astronomical environment, if the source is not really moving, if the system is static, it's really difficult or impossible to actually reverse the direction of the magnetic field. So the fact that we observed that the direction of the magnetic field reversed means the source is actually moving with respect to the global magnetic field. If fast radio bursts are magnetized, and that's one of the hypotheses that are out there. Yeah, I think we still don't really know where actually the radio signal is from. Yeah, but if it's magnetized, I think our observations suggest the magnetar has to be within, for example, like a binary system or something. So the magnetar has to be moving around something. And we don't know if it is a massive star or if it is even like a black hole. So I think that's the key discovery from this observation. It's a fascinating result. How did you arrive at that? So a couple of years ago, astronomers at Parkes 
installed a new receiver called ultra wideband low receiver. So the unique feature of this system is that it covers a very wide frequency range, in particularly the high frequency range at about 2 gigahertz and above. And it turned out that polarized emission, which we use to measure the Friday rotation, can only be detected from this FRB at relatively high radio frequency. So that makes parts and the ultra-wideband low receiver kind of the unique instrument for this type of study. And that leads to the discovery we presented in the paper. And where to from here? Yeah, a uh, really good question. I think there are two things we really want to do. One thing is to keep observing this particular FRB, FRB 2019-0520B, because this is a really special one. And if this FRB is in a binary system with either a massive star or a black hole, we would expect the variation of the uh, Faraday rotation to be periodic. So if we keep observing this source, we might be actually present direct evidence supporting the binary hypothesis. And another thing, obviously, is to um, observe other FRBs, especially repeating ones, and potentially find new FRBs and then observe them with ultra-wideband low and detect polarization from them and see if they also show similar features as the, the one we just observed. Considering how long we've been studying neutron stars for now, are you shocked that we still know so little about them? Yeah, I think neutron stars are full of surprises. After like almost like 16 years of studies, I think we have already learned a lot about neutron stars and where their emission is from and um, uh, what types of systems they are in. But I think there are still a lot of open questions around neutron stars, magnetars, and all these objects. I think that's probably because of the how extreme these systems are and we simply don't have any environment that's even close to them on the Earth or within our uh, solar system. So it's really very unique systems and the environment and which actually allow us to probe some of the very fundamental physics that we can't actually do on the Earth. It's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, it is. That's Shidae from the University of Western Sydney and this is Space Time. Still to come. It's been a busy time on the Korean Peninsula, with South Korea successfully launching locally built satellites on a rocket which it also built locally. Meanwhile, north of the border, Pyongyang has failed in its latest attempt to launch a spy satellite. And North Korea's close ally Iran has unveiled its latest long-range ballistic missile. All that and more still to come on Space Time. South Korea has successfully launched its homegrown Nori rocket, placing eight satellites into orbit. This was the third launch for the 47-metre-tall Nuri, which successfully put a test satellite into orbit last year, but failed in a 2021 attempt after the launch vehicle's third-stage engine burn ended early. Seoul says it'll undertake three more launches of the new rocket system by 2027. The flight was launched from the Nauru Space Centre on South Korea's southern coast. As South Korea knows, getting into space is hard. Its first two attempts in 2009 and 2010 both used Russian technology and both ended in failure. In 2013, South Korea did succeed in achieving orbit, but again it was with the help of Russian technology on the launch's first stage. 
Then last June, South Korea became only the seventh nation in the world to successfully launch a one-ton payload on a rocket they built. And with this latest launch, it means not only was the rocket home built, but so too were the satellites. Meanwhile, north of the border, Pyongyang has failed in its latest attempt to launch a spy satellite with the rocket and its secretive payload crashing into the sea in a fiery ball of flame. Worse still for Pyongyang, the South Korean military was able to retrieve some of the highly classified wreckage in what must be considered a potential intelligence bonanza. The North Korean rocket blasted off to the usual bluster of anti-Western speeches and triumphant fanfares with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un watching on. Before the launch, the communist dictator claimed that the satellite would be vital to monitoring the military movements of the United States and its allies. The launch triggered immediate air raid warnings in both South Korea and Japan. All appeared to be going nominally, as the rocket named Kalima-1, after a mystical winged horse, shot into the sky. From what we can tell from the North Korean vision supplied to Western media outlets, Chalima-1 appears to be powered by a Soviet-era ID-250 liquid-fueled rocket engine, similar to that fitted to North Korea's Horsong-15 intercontinental ballistic missiles. And that would mean its orbital satellite payload, called Maliong, which means telescope in Korean, would be somewhere between 200 and 300 kilograms in mass. However, as the rocket continued to climb, things suddenly turned bad. It seems the second stage failed to ignite, and that caused the rocket and its satellite payload to plunge back to the surface, splashing down in the Yellow Sea. South Korea's military later released images showing salvaged rocket debris recovered from the crash site some 200 kilometers off the coast. Pyongyang has built a range of nuclear-capable missiles, developed during what North Korea claimed was a peaceful scientific space program. Remember, the same technology which puts satellites into orbit can also carry nuclear weapons to the other side of the world. Pyongyang began testing ballistic missiles that it called satellite launches back in 2012 and 2016 as part of a joint nuclear weapons research deal with Iran. Pyongyang had launched at least five satellites since 1998, three of which failed, two of which appear to have made it into orbit. Seoul, Tokyo and Washington have all slammed the launch, which violates a raft of UN resolutions barring Pyongyang from any tests using ballistic missile technology. Meanwhile, United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres has called on Pyongyang to cease further launches and return to the negotiating table. This is Space Time. Still to come... Iran unveils its latest long-range ballistic missile, and later in the science report, claims that artificial intelligence could pose a human extinction-level event. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Iran has unveiled its latest long-range ballistic missile. Tehran says its new K-bar missile will have a range of over 2,000 kilometers, carrying a 1,500-kilogram warhead. The 13-meter-long missile is based on the earlier Karam Shah missile, which was originally developed by North Korea as the Horsong-10. And like its Pyongyang twin, the K-bar is specifically designed to carry a thermonuclear warhead. Interestingly, the same missile was previously called the Koram Shah 4, and it differs from the original Koram Shah in its use of hypergolic fuels, which can be stored in tanks for years, thereby shortening launch preparation time to just 12 minutes. 
Also, the new propellant requires smaller tanks, thereby reducing the motor section of the missile to about 13 metres, with the warhead adding an additional 4 metres to the missile's length. Intelligence reports suggest the airframe for the new missile is constructed out of stronger composite materials, and mid-phase navigation systems have been included, which enable it to correct its course once outside the atmosphere. That way it's not reliant on terminal guidance, which can be disrupted by electronic warfare systems. The new missile's unveiling and test launch came as Tehran's nuclear non-proliferation treaty talks hit another stalemate, with the Islamic Republic continuing to refuse to follow its original 2015 Vienna Agreement. Back in February, Bloomberg News reported that international atomic energy inspectors in Iran had discovered uranium enriched to 84% purity. That discovery came as Israeli intelligence reports confirmed that Tehran now had enough enriched weapons-grade uranium to build at least four crude nuclear warheads. What all that means is that Tehran was already at breakout point back in February and could deploy its first nuclear weapon within three months. If correct, it means that deadline has now passed. However, other sources claim the Islamic Republic still needs another six months to two years in order to perfect its trigger system, in order to determine how to miniaturize the weapon for use in a missile and how to develop a useful missile reentry system. It's all part of the growing list of breaches of Tehran's 2015 Vienna Nuclear Non-Proliferation Accords. Those tensions began escalating last year after Iran decided to turn off and remove 27 United Nations International Atomic Energy Agency surveillance cameras designed to monitor Tehran's rapidly advancing nuclear program. The UN nuclear watchdog says the Islamic Republic began using advanced centrifuges to enrich its uranium back in 2019 and it now has an enriched uranium stockpile 18 times above its 2015 Vienna agreements. Tehran also recommenced refusing access to International Atomic Energy Agency weapons inspectors or disclosing the location of key nuclear weapons components suspected to be in its possession. Then, in February 2021, the United Nations nuclear watchdog found Iran had started producing uranium metal. This material has only one use, and that is in a nuclear weapon. That discovery was followed in April 2021 when both German and Swedish intelligence agencies warned of growing efforts by Tehran to obtain nuclear weapons technology. And a report by the IAEA in May 2022 found traces of enriched uranium at three secret atomic weapons research facilities. Meanwhile, the oil-rich nation insists its nuclear program is for peaceful power generation only. This is Space Time. And time now to take a brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. The world's most powerful tech leaders have issued a confronting new warning about the potential dangers of artificial intelligence, saying AI poses as great a threat to the existence of humanity as nuclear war. More than 350 industry experts have signed the latest open letter calling for urgent controls and legislation to keep artificial intelligence contained. The Center for AI Safety says the threat of an artificial intelligence-triggered extinction event should be a top global priority. The statement was signed by leading industry officials, including OpenAI CEO Sam Altman, 
the so-called godfather of AI, Jeffrey Hinton, as well as multiple leading executives and researchers from companies including Google, Microsoft, DeepMind and Anthropic. It all follows a similar warning earlier this year by SpaceX and Tesla boss Elon Musk and Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak. While they all agree that today's AI is still some way off from the self-aware Skynet of Terminator fame, the systems are now getting smarter than their human creators, and they're already capable of spreading misinformation on a mass scale. In Australia, the Albanese government is considering a ban on high-risk uses of artificial intelligence and automated decision-making, warning of potential harms, including the creation of deep fakes and algorithmic biases. Meanwhile, Microsoft has issued a new warning that state-sponsored Chinese hackers have infiltrated critical infrastructure networks in the United States and its Western allies. Microsoft highlighted Guam, a U.S. territory in the Pacific, which is a vital U.S. military outpost, as one of the key targets. And it warned that similar malicious activity had also been detected on mainland America. The stealthy attack by China-sponsored actor Vault Typhoon has enabled long-term espionage and was aimed at disrupting critical infrastructure in the event of war. Microsoft says the campaign's targeting organizations in communications, manufacturing, power and water utilities, transportation, construction, maritime, government, information technology, and educational sectors. Now, the Microsoft statement just happened to coincide with a new advisory released by the United States, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and the UK governments, warning that the hacking by Beijing was likely occurring globally. Microsoft says the Vault Typhoon attack tries to blend into normal network activity by routing traffic through compromised small office and home network equipment, including routers, firewalls, and VPN hardware. A new study has confirmed that even without nerves, plants can still sense when something's touching them and when it lets go. The findings, reported in the journal Nature, are based on Washington State University experiments which demonstrated how individual plant cells responded to the touch of very fine glass rods by sending slow waves of calcium signals to other plant cells. And when that pressure was released, they sent much more rapid waves. Scientists have long known that plants can respond to touch. The new study shows that plant cells send different signals when touch is initiated and when it's ended. The authors conducted a set of 84 experiments on 12 plants using thel, cress and tobacco plants that have been specially bred to include calcium sensors. After placing pieces of these plants under a microscope, they applied a slight touch to individual plant cells using a micro cantilever, essentially a tiny glass rod about the size of a human hair. When this happened, they saw many complex responses depending on the force and duration of the touch. But the difference between the touch and its removal was clear. Within 30 seconds of the applied touch to a single cell, the researchers saw slow waves of calcium ions travelling from that cell through adjacent plant cells, lasting for about 3-5 to minutes. And removal of the touch triggered an almost instant set of more rapid waves that dissipated within a minute. The authors believe that these waves are likely due to changes in pressure inside the cell. See, unlike animal cells which have permeable membranes, plant cells have very strong cellular walls that cannot be easily breached. So just a light touch will temporarily increase pressure in the plant cell. Previous research has already shown that when a pest like a caterpillar bites into a plant leaf, it can initiate a plant's defensive response system, and that can include the release of chemicals which make the leaf suddenly taste bad or become toxic.
New Zealand skeptics have followed their Australian and American counterparts and are offering a big cash prize to anyone who can scientifically prove psychic, supernatural, paranormal or clairvoyant capabilities. Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics says, Despite invitations to some of Kiwi's best-known mystic marvels, no one's come forward yet to try and prove their abilities. In Australia, we've had a challenge for as long as we've been around, for 40-odd years, to anyone who can prove a particular paranormal power. Psychics, water diviners are a lot of them, that sort of thing. So far, we've done at least a couple of hundred tests, and so far, no one has proved their abilities under scientific conditions. The New Zealanders now have a similar sort of scheme. Ours is, is 100,000, I think, so is theirs. They have now actually put out an invitation to a, a small coterie of people that they would love to test. One is a fellow who claims he can predict the weather and earthquakes by looking at the moon, phases of the moon and the stars, etc. Another is a psychic who can communicate with the dead, and a third one is a naturopath and a herbalist who sells a homeopathic essence for uh, being able to help people sleep. She reckons she's actually got some, some venture capital funding too. Funnily enough, none of those three have actually said, yes, I'll go for the test. But one of them, the guy with the uh, uh, long-range weather pro- uh, product says, well, see, my, my evidence proves itself. I've done this and they've looked at the evidence and said, no, you haven't. Uh, there's a lot of times you're predicting things that never happened. Predicting an earthquake in New Zealand is actually a pretty fair bet. That's like they predicting do have a fairly night often. follows day, isn't it? Yeah, and they're not always very big. I mean, yeah, most places have earthquakes. There are small earthquakes around the world every day. So, but New Zealand is sort of prone to it, being on the Pacific Rim. But he often gets it wrong anyway. So that's uh, they said, well, come on, let's do it. Let's have a look at you. And he said, no. The naturopath decided to go the other way, and they reckon they're doing research. Although they reckon they were planning research until COVID came around, and they talked about that the skeptics challenge didn't meet their criteria for excellence in research. <laughs> well, that's a so, nice switch. It's a switch. Yeah, they're going around. And um, what did they say? The wonderful thing was that at great investment developed. They developed protocols for a human clinical trial using gold standard sleep research, polysomnography, as well as the most internationally recognized sleep surveys. So they kind of give a real side patina to what she's doing. But as far as I know, the people she's claiming gave her the money, I haven't been able to find a record of them having done that. And she doesn't actually list anything more about it on her website. So you wonder if it is happening. She said it's delayed because of COVID. So using fancy words, sciencey words, doesn't mean she's actually got any sort of basis to it's her claim. It's all very scientific. Yes. Scientific or very much. The other guy, the, the psychic, he uh, refuses to comment. He's sort of part of a class that is often called by skeptics grief vampires. Psychics who find people who are grieving over a dead person and they will then sort of offer them help by you know, getting, putting them in touch with their dead spirits who amazingly have the most inane comments you could ever hear. Nothing particularly interesting, nothing particularly clever. So these are just people taking money, unfortunately. That's Tim Mindham from Australian Skeptics. That's the show for now. Space Time is available every Monday, Wednesday and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favourite podcast download provider and from spacetimewithstuartgary.com. Space Time's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group and other rewards. 
Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.com for full details. And if you want more Space Time, please check out our blog, where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at Stuart Gary on Twitter, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel, and on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. And Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 